You're listening to the Girl Next Door podcast. I'm Erica. And I'm Kelsey. We're two former next door neighbors and good friends who love a good chat and a good laugh. We're inviting you to come on in, have a drink, and stay a while. Hey, friend. Hey, friend. So on today's episode, we are digging into a serious and important topic, white privilege. This is something that we talk about as friends when we don't have mics in front of us. And we always say that we want this show to feel like sitting down to talk with your girlfriends. So sometimes that means talking about periods or husbands or books. And sometimes that means talking about white privilege and fighting racism. So we know we are no experts on race and our intent is not to speak to the experiences of black people or people of color. Our hope is just that we can demonstrate more of what we want to see, which is white people acknowledging their race privilege, having productive conversations about what we can do about it, and inviting others, especially other white people, into the conversation. So before we dive into that conversation, let's catch up on what's happening around the neighborhood for you. Okay, well, I want to talk about my Thinks underwear. Yes, yes, do (laughs) tell us. I had shared, I think in the period episode, that I was interested to try some Thinks underwear, and actually not for my period, but for um, making me feel secure and (laughs) protected while I was working out Uh with... um, leaking pee after having had three babies during my workouts. So I did buy two pairs of the Thinks underwear thongs because that's what I work out in and I'm wearing them for my intense workouts when I'm doing lots of jumping. Like Mm -hmm. that's where I have the issues. Mm -hmm. And I am so happy to report that they are awesome. Even a thong with less fabric to absorb. There's just not as much down there. Exactly. I just just need something absorbent down there. And you know, I had tried before different like a panty liner even Mm -hmm. like the the panty liners that are thong shaped that is just not doing it for a workout so much shifting exactly so much shifting exactly so this is really working very well and I am so happy to have found something that is just making me feel more comfortable in that situation while I'm working out oh I'm good I'm glad to hear that and that gives me hope for those kind of underwear in you know overall so that's good to know um, okay, so speaking of down there, we're gonna we're just gonna keep this period yeah. train rolling. Um, it is downshift week for me. Okay, and I came to your door and told you how very crabby I was today. So you know, I'm just I'm just owning my PMS fully yeah. this week. So I talk about this on Instagram a lot, and it's like it dawned on me finally this past year that I should intentionally kind of downshift in all ways during that week because I have such a hard time. I have really bad um, PMDD actually. And so I just feel like I need to be really proactive in managing Mm -hmm. my mood and my energy level during that time. So I wanted to share a couple of things that I do during this week because I'm doing it right now. Number one, we don't do school after lunch. So we, I somehow consolidate whatever we need to get done needs to get done before lunch or it needs to wait until the following week. That just helps with the energy level for me because in the afternoons I'm usually pretty exhausted um, anyways teaching, but like especially during that week, it also helps just like lower the expectation bar for the kids. Like that is not the week to push it right. where you're going to get a lot of attitudes and pushback. So it ends up being a little bit more independent learning, more online app-based learning that week. It gives us kind of a break from our book work in most ways. Um And we just kind of get our core subjects in and then maybe science or social studies is like a video or documentary or something on the computer for that week. And that has been working really, really well. Um, Easy dinners. And by easy, I mean, I don't make them. 
Okay. Love I it. mean, like we are, you are warming yourself up something from the fridge. You're doing breakfast for dinner. Dad is making dinner or we're carrying out. Like I just basically abdicate all dinner responsibility that Love week. It. And that, that works for us. Um, also, I texted you about this. I have a period uniform now. I love this. Tell me more. So I have these like athletic joggers. They're like an athletic material. And I got them. I got like four pairs of them. And during that week, that is my uniform. I wear those and a t-shirt every single day. Mm-hmm. And that way I don't have to think because, you know, that time of the... First of all, nothing feels comfortable because right. you, you're bloated, whatever. You also just are... You can't really trust your feelings that week and you feel like everything looks ugly on Mm. you and whatever so it's like nope and then if I do have to dress up for something or not be wearing joggers it's a dress like a sundress Mm, so I have a couple of go-to easy like kind of t-shirt dresses Mm -hmm. or flowy so that I just feel like comfortable no matter how I'm sitting Mm -hmm. and you know you know how it is it's just all very uncomfortable so yes need some comfortable things and then the fourth thing that I try to do is be really strict with my social media use this week Mm. because I find that that's when like the news of the world gets to me more and the comparison and all that Mm -hmm. stuff that I do pretty well with on social media overall but that week of the month seems to be really hard for me so Mm -hmm. I really set my hour limit on Instagram and like when mm-hmm. that's done, it's done, and I actually obey it. I don't just hit ignore right. it during this week of the month. So just a few ideas if you are I looking to have your own downshift week. I feel like especially the social media use is something I wouldn't necessarily yeah. think of. Yeah. And so I love that you're giving yourself that limit. Yeah, just very affected by it that week. So, okay, let's start with defining white privilege for the purposes of this conversation. So both what it is and what it isn't. Um, I want to share a definition from a Washington Post article by Christine Emba, but then let's each share in our own words what white privilege means to us in our lives. So here's the quote. What is white privilege? It's the level of societal advantage that comes with being seen as the norm in America, automatically conferred irrespective of wealth, gender, or other factors. It makes life smoother, but it's something you would barely notice unless it were suddenly taken away or unless it never applied to you in the first place. And we'll link to the full article if you want to check that out. But I thought that was a great definition. Um, So what does that mean to you? Well, in thinking about this, I thought about just um, a couple of things, both in my day-to-day life and then like at a broader societal level. So for me, one of the first things that comes to mind is that white privilege for me means that wherever I go in my day-to-day life and most of the time when I travel, that most of the people that I encounter will look like me in terms of having light skin. Mm. That is true here in Gilbert Mm -hmm. where I looked up our... uh, population diversity and Gilbert is 80, almost 83% white. Mm -hmm. There's just not a lot of racial diversity here. And so because of that, because I mostly in my day-to-day life encounter other light-skinned people, I feel like I have this inherent sense of belonging and Mm. feeling entitled to be places, even though everyone has is equally entitled to yeah. be in public yeah. spaces, but like to the point where I don't even question my you never feel belongingness. Out of place. Exactly, right. exactly. So that is something that I think about. And not only do I mostly see white people 
when I go out places in my life, but I also see them mostly in movies, television, and in the books I read. Mm-hmm. And I, I do think this is changing, which is so great, but mm-hmm. still our media is still overwhelmingly white. Mm-hmm. So it just kind of reinforces yeah. that. Um, white privilege to me also means having my skin tone be the quote unquote default to yes. the point that I often don't even think about having a race. Yeah. And that is white privilege. Yep. Um, that is something that wasn't really brought to my attention until I was an adult at like a concept mm-hmm. that I have a race, mm-hmm. which is just, you know, really incredible. And I, I don't think that that is the experience of non-white people in yeah. our country. And then lastly, more broadly beyond me, just personally, like at the societal level, I think about the impacts to our society from white privilege. There are so many aspects of just normal life from who you marry to getting a mortgage, where you can buy a home, getting adequate health care, and so much more where race either is or was in the past a factor in just being able to live life the, the way, way that, you wanted to. the way yeah. yeah and the way that anyone should be able to mm-hmm. have those choices mm-hmm. and in all of those situations that i've encountered i have never had a harder time getting what i need or want because of my skin color right and that right. is white privilege and then and then finally not only do i personally benefit from white privilege currently but i have white parents white grandparents white great grandparents mm-hmm on both sides of my Mm -hmm. family and they also benefited in ways because of their skin Mm -hmm. color. And I think that I benefit because they benefited. Right. That generational, generational wealth and the lack of generational trauma, right? mm -hmm. Like that comes along with maybe having grandparents of color that went through, you know, literally lynchings, beatings, all kinds of things Mm -hmm. that would be passed down generationally as trauma that Mm -hmm. I think we don't think about too. Yeah. I'll just say I think just because we've never noticed it before or even actively taken advantage of our white privilege doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And I think that that is where some people get hung up is that, well, I would never like, I don't want this. I don't want to. And and I believe most people don't. But also if you ask most people, if they would, white people, if they would trade places with a person of color, they will also tell you no, because they know it's inherently harder. Mm -hmm. Um, because of our systemic racism. So I I think that's a great point you made that you just didn't even have to think about your race. Um, the very reason white people can say, I don't see race, is that white privilege to have never been forced to think about it because our whiteness is set as the not only the default, but the standard. Yeah. And the further removed someone is from whiteness, mm-hmm. the less rights they've had historically, um, the worst treatment they've had historically, even on a scale within like the black community, for example, right? Like within mm-hmm. the black community, if they're, if you're closer to white, you're probably treated a little bit better back in the day. That, so all of that to say, like, I think that we have a hard time even wrapping our head around this idea because we're just like, no, I, this is just my experience is the norm. Right. And every and just like that very fact is so racist. Right. You know what I mean? That we think that, but it's we're all breathing the same air. We've all mm-hmm. been brought up with the same culture. So for example, here's like a little tiny example that again I didn't think about till I was an adult either. And really probably until I started selling makeup. Mm. Have you ever had to, as a white person, search for a hair product 
or a makeup product that matches your skin type or your hair type. Or a Band-Aid. Right. No, no, I have no. not. Or are they just readily available in multiple mm-hmm. options? Mm-hmm. Um, like that is a little thing and it, you wouldn't even think about it because you've never never had to think about it. So that to me is like an example of white privilege in in some of the most inconsequential things compared to some other ways that uh, racism plays out, right? But still really important and think about the, um, to me, white privilege is like setting whiteness as the norm and then othering everything else, Mm -hmm. whether intentionally or just by participating in the society we all live in, Mm -hmm. right? So, okay, what about then what white privilege isn't to you? Because I think that this is obviously a word or a phrase that gets very controversial and people have a lot of big feelings about. So in your opinion, what do you think it is not? Um, To me, white privilege is, it's not a tactic to make white people feel guilt or shame. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really important to point out. We'll talk more about why talking about white privilege feels uncomfortable to white people a little bit later. But I do think that there is this automatic response for white people to say, no, not me. I I don't want to be taking part in that. I'm not taking part and to get really defensive. And I do understand that impulse, Mm -hmm. but that is actually making the issue about the feelings and emotions of white people when really the conversation should be about how to create a more equitable society for everyone. That includes black people, people of color, as well as white Mm -hmm. people. We really all benefit when society is more equitable. Right. The, the book White Fragility specifically talks about this, and that was a really eye-opening read to me that I found really interesting just mm-hmm. because it is just how our culture works. And so I found that very informative and interesting. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah. Uh, white privilege does not mean that I've had an easy life or that I've had an easier life than every single person of color even. Um, but it means that the hard things in my life have nothing to do with my race. Mm or that my race has never been a factor in making life even harder for me. And I think that's a really important way to understand it. I'm going to read you this section on white privilege broken down by Marie Beecham, a racial equity and social unity advocate. And she writes, I'll link to the whole post too in show notes, but she writes, some people have a hard time recognizing privilege saying, I work hard. I don't get things handed to me. I understand that. Here's how I respond. Privilege isn't bonus points for you and your team. It's unfair penalties the other team gets that you don't. Privilege isn't the presence of perks and benefits. It's the absence of obstacles and barriers. That's a lot harder to notice. If you have a hard time recognizing your privileges, focus on what you don't have to go through and let that fuel your empathy and action. And I think it's like anything else until we, you know, if we have a problem, let's take race aside for a minute. If you have a problem in your marriage, You cannot fix a thing you don't acknowledge. Mm. You cannot help another person fix a thing that you can't talk about as an honest problem first. And I think when we get stuck on this white privilege and refusal to acknowledge, yeah, historically especially, I have had things much easier because I'm white, Mm -hmm. or whiteness in general has Mm -hmm. had Mm -hmm. things much easier, Um, or has not had to deal with the hardships that people of color had. When we can just start there, 
And that's not to say it's your fault. Right. That's not to say that you are actively perpetuating it. But it, we cannot fix anything and we cannot advocate if what we're really wanting to be is supportive and you know, not racist. We can't do that without acknowledging how racism impacts all of us. So I think of it that way. I've actually talked with Jeremiah about this. Jeremiah had a hard time with that phrasing at first. And this was a couple of years ago we had this conversation. And I said, imagine... Imagine it in a different context, like, because I think racism is such a trigger word and people think racism equals evil, Yes, right? And so unless you are like actively racist and a horrible person, right. you can't possibly- That can't apply to it, you. It can't apply to you. So I said, what about if it was just about um, men and women, for example, if I was complaining about menstruation and how hard it was or childbirth or something that you can't possibly understand- and what you kept telling me was, well, I didn't ask for this. I didn't ask to not have a uterus. Mm -hmm. I didn't. And all you did was defend your maleness right. instead of saying, you know what? That's really hard. Tell me more about that. I can't possibly understand that. You're right. Tell me more about that. And man, I'm I'm realizing the things I don't have to deal with as a man, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's if you take it maybe out of the race conversation for a minute, I think if you're having a hard time getting your head around it, that might help. And that for him was like, oh, <laughs> like I get it. Like why? That's a great metaphor. You know, it's like just, it's just about understanding an experience that you can't fully know. Right. And, and being open to understanding that. So, and then, yeah, like I talked about, I think it's also honestly the privileges of not having generational trauma that is for sure passed down from years of oppression. There's no way I think we... I think we purposely distance um, the events of slavery, the events of um, civil rights movement as further in the past than they were. And the older I get and the more I realize how quickly time goes on and I realize things like, oh, my dad was alive at the same time as Martin yes. Luther King Jr. Yes. You know, um, it's not just this faraway thing that's all done right. with. It, even if even if we had been perfect since then, mm -hmm. the effects of growing up like that for people have has been traumatizing and has been um, oppressive in ways we like economic things that we don't even think about. Not even to mention like mass incarceration and the ways that that generationally like plays down in families. And so I just think to not acknowledge that is kind of a willful ignorance at a certain point. Like we have to say, okay, obviously this is going to impact future generations. Now what do we do with it? Mm -hmm. And it's not our responsibility to go back and fix it. We can't, but we can acknowledge it and then be part of the solution. So. And along these lines, there are lots of great examples that were really eye-opening in a really great article called Unpacking the Invisible Backpack, and we will link to that in our show notes. Okay. So how did you personally come to be aware of white privilege, and did you have an awareness of it growing up? How has that kind of impacted how you view it? Well, when I was growing up in South Austin, I would say the majority of my classmates, friends, teachers, people that I interacted with were white, although about a quarter of the population in Austin identifies as Hispanic. So it was, I think, more diverse than where I live now, mm -hmm. but still not super racially mm -hmm. diverse. Um, growing up, we would visit my grandparents, my mom's parents in Arkansas, in kind of a rural area mm -hmm. on the farm where she grew up. 
And there, the disparities between white people and black people were very apparent to me, Mm -hmm. even as a very young child. Mm -hmm. At home, I definitely had people in my life with different skin colors, so I was aware of that basic difference. But on those visits, I could see even as a young kid that all the people who seemed to be having a much harder time had dark skin. Yeah. And so I think that was really my first awareness of white privilege, even though I obviously didn't have those words for it at that time. I would say as I was growing up and through conversations about where my parents grew up and just general current events that they would talk about that I was made aware of racism and had a general awareness of how my being white meant that I was not the subject of racism. Mm -hmm. And my parents would talk about and part of their motivation. My dad is from close by in Memphis. Part Mm -hmm. of their motivation of leaving that area was witnessing the racism Mm -hmm. that that Mm -hmm. they saw. And so that was a reason why they wanted to live somewhere else. But I don't think I thought specifically about white privilege and and didn't have those words for it really until graduate school. Actually, I was really fortunate to go to a graduate school program that intentionally creates diverse classes with people from all over the world. Mm -hmm. And that in and of itself was such a cool experience, Mm -hmm. just especially coming from where I grew up. Mm -hmm. So that was really cool and such a cool opportunity. During our program, our school did some specific diversity and inclusion training and workshops that we all had to attend. And I think that was maybe the first time where I had someone directly address how race affects different people's experiences. And we're also able to think about how other aspects of someone's life could affect their life experience, such as if they were wealthy or poor growing up or Mm -hmm. if they had a disability. It was just very eye-opening. And I want to share something that a classmate of mine shared that I'm thankful to have heard at the time. At the time, I think I had only thought in a more general way about race and just thought, well, you just have to treat everyone the same, obviously. Like I wasn't thinking- That's how you solve it. Exactly. And I wasn't thinking more deeply about the experience of non-white people. So during a discussion, my classmate who was black shared thoughts on what it meant to him if someone said they're colorblind, it didn't see race. Mm -hmm. And I think before that, like I said, I don't think I had thought deeply about these things. And I think my thought would have been just like, yeah, we shouldn't even think about race or skin color. It doesn't matter. Right. You know, just treat everyone with kindness. Everyone can, you know, be anything they want. My classmate, what he essentially said was, I am a black man and this is obvious. So don't tell me that you can't see that. Mm -hmm. And that was so eye opening. Mm -hmm. And I'm so appreciative for him to have shared that and to have been like to see it, it was such a, a just like one of those kind of more light bulb moments, yeah, you like know, simple but so profound. Exactly, that yeah. I know I would have gained that knowledge, but mm-hmm. it just kind of happened very quickly in that way. And it really opened my eyes to see that, of course, we can't say we're not seeing someone's skin color right. because one, we it's are actually a lie. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like we are, we are we're just actively <laughs> lying. And two, that then you're denying to them that their skin color affects their life experience. Right. And that's You're basically that's saying, right. I don't believe that it's any different for exactly. you. So why should I notice mm-hmm. that thing about you that makes your life very different exactly. than mine? Yeah. Exactly. So that was that was really, really impactful to me. Um And I would say that since then, I've just been on a path of trying to educate myself more about race and issues around race. The events are cultural, big cultural events like Barack Obama's presidency, Donald Trump's presidency, just seeing in the news the many unarmed black people killed by police officers, Mm -hmm. the murder of George Floyd, have just made me feel that continuing to be actively learning about race, white privilege, and racism is 
essential to being a good American citizen. Yeah, agreed. So I grew up in a very racially diverse part of Wisconsin, actually. I know people don't necessarily think of that when you think of Wisconsin. You think of cows and farms and whatnot. But I grew up in the southeast corner of Wisconsin in Racine, which is right in between Milwaukee and Chicago, pretty much uh, geographically. And so I... I don't remember not being around black people or other people of color, you know, in terms of like all through elementary school, having some of my best friends be that. I, I just don't remember a time being like, oh, I this is mostly white people. So I that shaped my um, experience in a lot of ways. I noticed very early on that nothing was ever really attributed to my whiteness, but there were lots of things attributed to people's blackness. So black people like this kind of thing. Black people do this kind of thing. Mm. Black people live in this neighborhood. Mm -hmm. But, you know, even just in conversation with kids at school, and I don't ever remember anybody saying something because of me being white, Mm -hmm. you know? And so it was like just that even, that somehow that blackness has more inherent traits than whiteness is interesting to me. And and I think I had a very um, early awareness of, the black community and how the black community feels different than the white community and and not even fully being able to articulate or understand that at the time, but just like, oh, there's something different about the experience of a black church. There's something different about, um, you know, the, the games they play on the playground, even that mm-hmm. I didn't grow up learning how to play mm-hmm. in my neighborhood, the double Dutch and whatever. And like just noticing those differences. So I don't, I remember even from a young age feeling frustrated when people were like, I don't see color. And I'm like, yes, you do. Yes, you do. We're all, you know what I mean? Like I just, I think, cause I was kind of fascinated by the differences Mm -hmm. right away. Like, okay, I just noticed this as a kid. Mm -hmm. I read in college a book that I feel like really put words to a lot of that. And I still, it's one of my favorite books on this topic and I highly recommend it is, um, why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria by Beverly Daniel Tatum. And I think it was just such a great eye opening book for me to realize we have a different culture because we have a very different experience in this country. And a lot of those things were born out of that experience. Our sense of community, our, you know, all different things. And that when you are in an oppressed community, you place even more importance on the camaraderie within your community, right? And so in ways that I was like, oh, I'll be friends with whoever, mm-hmm. black kids might not have felt the same way mm-hmm. or felt that same comfort level or like they could just step into my world as mm-hmm. easily as I tried mm-hmm. to step into theirs. And I think that that is, it was just very eye-opening. I mean, and then I think of like a couple of examples that I think, I don't know how related this is, just other than like well-meaning people not realizing how racist something is. So like, the, and I tease my mom about this all the time, so she already knows. But this is an example. I My first job in high school, I worked for the Racine Council on Um, alcohol and other drug abuse. And part of what I was a teen peer. Mm -hmm. And so our job was to like work with kids in different programs. Like, for example, if you, if there was like a required family program for um, families who were involved in DCS because of addiction issues or whatever that might be, and they had some maybe required parenting classes they had to take, then we would provide like daycare for that class. So then we would be working so we worked in some very vulnerable communities with very vulnerable families. We worked with kids in like group home settings. And so our job was just to kind of like be a good role model for those kids and help, you know, run games and do different things. So I was the only white person, which was a new experience for me. 
Um, and I, I really loved that job. I feel like that job still impacts my life quite a bit, but I had everybody over from work one time, like just to hang out. And my parents ordered pizza and stuff and we were all hanging down in the basement and we just kind of like forgot about the food. Like we were doing other things and everybody ended up leaving. And my mom, my mom looks, we had a lot of pizza left over and she looks at me and she's like, um, and she was like real sheepish about it. She's like, why is there so much pizza left over? Do black people not like pizza? <laughs> she like whispered it like she, uh-huh. and I was like, I was horrified. Like, mom, no, we just got busy doing other things and they didn't want it. But it, it's so funny because if I had a group of white kids over, right, that would never be attributed to their race. It was right. like something that she assumed must be like mysterious right. black person thing that they don't like pizza, right. which right. who doesn't like pizza? Right. But that was one example where it's like, it's the othering, right? Mm-hmm. Like I know my white experience they must be very different than right. me. I can't possibly understand, mm-hmm. you know. Um, another example, when I taught kindergarten, I taught the English language learning class. So I had mostly Hispanic kids, but some kids that spoke Arabic, so like kind of a little mini UN in my class mm-hmm. all the time. And I was that class. And then everybody else in the kindergarten was just a regular class. It was not an English language learning class. So I had the same standards and stuff to follow, but I did a lot of different things to help, um, you know, promote language and language acquisition. Anyways, so we were having this very problematic, still, Thanksgiving feast, Mm. right? Which is problematic on so many levels. Yeah. And it was assumed that my class of kids would come with their Native American feathers Mm. and that I would... That was what my class of kids always did. And it was my first year having this class. Wow. And I said, I, I literally was like floored. I, was, I said, first of all, I think that the celebration of this is maybe not all that appropriate to begin with. But second of all, how do you think it looks for me to march all of my brown children in with their Native American feathers, whether or not they are Native American? Right. Na- like, this is not okay, mm-hmm. you know? So like just things like that. And of course, everybody's just like, well, what do you mean? It's just a cute little tradition, right? you know? And so I think that sometimes we just don't, we think people are being overly sensitive or we um, dismiss things like that as no big deal. But that that's a lot of like the racial microaggression and undertone that communities of color talk about that we just, we just want to dismiss sometimes. Mm-hmm. So That was kind of my experience with that early on in life. Yeah. All right. So we have both noticed that this is an uncomfortable topic for white people to talk about. Um, So let's just sit with that discomfort for a minute um, and talk about our experience with why that is, how we're, and and also how we're working to get more comfortable talking about white privilege, race, all of that. All of that. Yeah, this is something that is not talked about much by white people. So it does feel like it can be, it's challenging to even have the right words to talk about it mm-hmm. and and to feel like you're not going to say the wrong thing yeah. or that it will be misinterpreted. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that ends up creating a lot of shame around it, yeah. which means we don't talk about right. it, which just perpetuates it. Right. So a few thoughts. So I will say, I mean, here I am putting out a podcast on this topic, but I too have felt yeah. guilt and shame. Like we're a little bit sweaty. Yes, we are. <laughs> <laughs> I have felt this too. When I learn more about how my skin color allows me to move through the world, to to live my life, thinking about how my, you know, 
ancestors, what their lives might have been like, and because they were white, those feelings can make me feel very overwhelmed and also have thoughts like you said before, like, but I don't personally want our world to be this way. I didn't make these Mm -hmm. decisions. What can I do about Mm -hmm. it? And like I said, I think that does detract from where the conversation actually needs to go. Here, here's what I think about that. Those thinking those things, like feeling them, it's not bad or wrong. But like I said before, it really focuses on my experience when what I want to focus on is how I can be a part of moving our country and culture to be more inclusive and equitable. Yeah. It's not that my experience is not valuable Mm -hmm. or as important as that of a non-white person, but in the context of white privilege, my feelings of guilt or shame are not moving the conversation forward. Yeah. And also I think about how those feelings of guilt or shame, they serve to prevent me from doing anything. Yes. So I have to remind myself, I I do not have to cure all the racial inequity. Yes. Yeah. No one is asking me to do that. Mm-hmm. No one is expecting that of any person. What I have responsibility for is my own life and my actions and to do my part to help us work towards a more equitable and mm-hmm. inclusive society. I And that means being open to learning and to unlearning, all of that. Mm-hmm. In terms of getting more comfortable, I am trying to work on having more conversations about white privilege and race, and I'm thankful that it's starting to feel more common and acceptable to Mm -hmm. talk about those things among people that I know anyway. Mm -hmm. I will say so far, I've mostly had these conversations with other white people, Yeah, both because most of my friends and social circles are white, and it, it does feel, uh, it does feel definitely more uncomfortable Mm -hmm. to bring up those topics with with well and I I will say to add to that too I think sometimes we feel as white people that it's our job to like bring all of our newfound wokeness to our friends of color and they don't need that's a burden that they don't need while we're processing for the first time maybe something that they have been living their whole life with and and we shouldn't um, put that burden on them to explain it to us and so I think that sometimes that feels like the right thing to do like I'm so sorry. And I didn't, you know, mm-hmm. it's, they don't need that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they mm-hmm. just want you to do your work and understand what's mm-hmm. happening. Yeah. And this is also something that I have been thinking about. Um, and this is a little bit more nuanced. And that is sometimes conversation topics and opinions come up and on the spot, like, I want to be that kind of person that can respond to be like, hey, you yeah. know, the way, the way you're saying that or, right. you know, just kind of gently guide someone right. to maybe see things a different way or kind of, yeah, point out maybe mm-hmm. where there's some white privilege or some racism like coming mm-hmm. in and like, have you considered this other perspective? And that sounds great. It sounds simple. It sounds simple, Mm -hmm. but the actual experience, and honestly, this happened to me not that long ago, is that with, depending on who you're in conversation with and what they're talking about and the opinions, it can be so hard in the moment. It can feel like, you know, this doesn't, this doesn't sit quite right with me, but it's like, but I can't tell you exactly right. why. And to go down that path without like a well thought out exactly. argument feels like exactly. scary. Yeah. And it's hard to do that just like on the spot, yeah. especially in, in this particular like situation, it felt like the, 
the person was speaking to something that they knew very well that I really didn't know that much about. Right. So then for me to jump in, it, it just, it felt very difficult. Mm-hmm. So, so just like pointing that out too, I think that's why it's hard and uncomfortable because yeah. it's not it's always literally just, hard and uncomfortable. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not always just like so straightforward right. where you can just say like, Hey, you know what? That actually is a little racist because of this, or mm-hmm. like, that's actually an example of white privilege because of this. Mm-hmm. Like it can feel very complicated. Ambiguous sometimes. Yes. Yeah. So anyway, what, what I'm trying to make a practice of is after those situations, uh, talking about it with Chris, because mm-hmm. I feel like he's a great person. Like we can talk to each other about that stuff and kind of like break it down and be like, okay, like why is that not sitting well? Or mm-hmm. why does that not seem quite right? And then what I want to work on is following up with that person. If it's a person I'm going to see again, yeah. if it's a person I feel comfortable with, and I wish I could feel comfortable doing this with anyone, but bringing, bringing up again, like, Hey, I've been thinking about, we were talking about that and mm-hmm. just trying to have that conversation when I'm more prepared and maybe hoping to broaden their perspective yeah. a little bit. I like that because it also takes the pressure in the moment to say or do the right thing um, off a little bit and says, you know, you can always follow up. And in in some ways that may be putting that person less on the spot too. Like if you're having a conversation at a dinner party and somebody says something and you challenge that right then, like maybe if you're not quite sure what to say, maybe coming back to that as, hey, you know, when you said this, this really didn't sit well with me and here's what I'm thinking. What are your thoughts on this? Mm-hmm. Or um, yeah, I, I like that approach of giving yourself permission to to follow back up with somebody Mm -hmm. on a conversation like that. Um, Yeah, I think the reason it's hard is guilt, legitimate guilt that whole groups of people have had to experience something that you would not have had to back in the same day and age because of how you were happened to be born. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is a a real thing and grief around that, and I think it's okay to feel that. I don't think we should take it to where it's like then our personal responsibility to make up for it or fix it somehow. But like sitting with that guilt and allowing allowing it to affect us emotionally is important, I think. Otherwise, we're not like if you're not bothered by the enslavement of a whole group of people for years, like Right. It should bother us. And right. I think that because right. it's just such a part of our history we're used to hearing about and because it's not happening in the same way anymore, mm-hmm. we feel like we don't want to engage with it sometimes. But I think that engagement is important. Um, so we feel that sense of guilt. We feel defensiveness like we've talked about. Like, I didn't do it. My my parents didn't do it. My grandparents didn't do it. And then there's the helplessness. It's yeah. like, well, I'm sitting here feeling bad about it, and I don't know what I can do to help it. Um, but I also will say, I think we've been taught culturally that those are ways of also avoiding responsibility to advocate for what's right. Um, it's very easy to wash our hands of it or to stay at the point where I, I'm just heartbroken. I didn't know this, especially Mm -hmm. as white women, I'm Mm going to say, um, and using our tears as ammo, which we know has literally taken black lives before, um, to abdicate our responsibility and say like, well, I'm feeling bad about it. Isn't it enough? What else do you want me to do? Uh, Instead of letting that fuel your action. Like we've talked about before, you can't solve a problem you don't acknowledge. So the first thing I think is digging into that, like, why does this even make me uncomfortable? Or why am I even feeling defensive? Literally write it on the top of a piece of paper and answer it for yourself or answer it in therapy. Like, what am I feeling defensive about? Um, And I think we take this then to our kids and we see this play out in the whole public school debate right now about 
critical race theory and what we should be teaching our kids. And we've somehow equated that teaching them about teaching them that wrong things were wrong is going to just make them feel bad about that wrong thing and also become that wrong thing somehow. Like teaching them that racism is wrong um, means they're going to become racist because before they weren't thinking about race. And that's such a the, the logic there just right. falls apart for me. Yep. That's like saying that teaching your kids that lying is wrong is going to turn them into liars. Mm. Teaching them that stealing is wrong is going to turn them into thieves. No, that's not how it works with educating our children. And we don't look at any other area of life that way. And so we shouldn't do it with racism. It is okay to call it racism to our kids. It is okay to teach them that it is wrong. And it is not going to turn them racist to teach them that a wrong thing is wrong. Mm -hmm. So that is my thought on that. Um, a couple of phrases that I have found helpful to kind of keep in my back pocket, and I don't use them as much as I want to, but um, something that you can say, I think, to challenge somebody when they're saying something that is, like you said, at that dinner party, they said something that doesn't sit right with you or is blatantly racist, because that happens too. Everybody's got that uncle. Mm -hmm. um, is to just ask the question, what do you mean by that? Mm. And I think what that does is, number one, allows them to not feel attacked necessarily. Mm -hmm. It's more like asking like, mm, yeah. tell me more because you just dropped that bomb and acted mm -hmm. like it didn't mean anything. Let, I, I need to know more about that. It also allows them to explain if you maybe did truly misunderstand something. Um, but I think it also sets the tone of like, no, you're not just going to say things like that. Right. And then... You know, like that, that will catch people's attention mm -hmm. and it's not okay with everybody here. I think another assumption, especially in a group of all white people often, especially in family, if you were all raised similarly and you may have differing views now, is to assume that everybody in that room feels the same way. Mm -hmm. And this is the norm, right? Mm -hmm. This is what, this is how white people feel about this. So something else that I have not used yet, but it's ready in my back pocket is, especially with something pretty egregious. I've got a couple of family members that it gets pretty um, gross sometimes to just say, you know, not everybody here feels that way. Oh, that's great. And then leave it alone so that you really are saying like, I'm not going to argue with you about this, but just know that that, mm -hmm. that doesn't fly with it's everybody okay here. With me. Yeah. And then maybe that's a follow-up conversation or whatever it might be. But I think those are two really helpful, like, when you don't know exactly what to say or like, I don't have the facts to rebut you right now, mm -hmm. but I just want you to know that I'm not okay with that. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to at least challenge what you just said. Yeah. So, okay. Tell them to me again, Erica, so we can okay. all put them in our back pocket. One is, what do you mean by that? So okay. somebody makes a somewhat racist joke or, you know, and they're, everyone's laughing because they're assuming that everybody thinks the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, so what do you mean by that? Or especially in an egregious situation to just say, you know, not everybody here feels that way. Love and that. you don't need to get into defending how you do feel. You don't need to get into, you know, chastising mm -hmm. them. But you're like, I'm going to let you know right now that, like, mm -hmm. that's not actually acceptable to mm -hmm. some people. So those are two that are in my back pocket for the next time that I'm sure I will need them. <laughs> um, and I will say, too, if you are really just digging into this for the first time and you need to sit in the uncomfortable for a minute or you need to be like, I don't really, I still am not really buying what they're saying. Mm -hmm. There's a couple of things I want to recommend. I found this free online test. It's from Harvard. It's the Harvard Implicit Association Test on Race. And it was super interesting because it shows how you, t you take the test online and it shows how like white people and people of color have a hard time associating good things with 
being of color as well. So like we have this automatic like white is right, black mm-hmm. is bad kind of association because how we've seen it play out in our yeah. life. Like you said, as a little kid, right? you know, visiting grandparents and seeing like the white people are living better than the black people. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was really interesting because even, you know, I, I consider myself an advocate for this and fairly open-minded and it was still that implicit bias still came through yeah. that like I had a hard time Associate. It's like a fast association mm-hmm. thing you do. It's it's hard to explain until you do it. But I would I would recommend checking out the Harvard Implicit Association Test on race, and we'll link to that in the yeah. show notes. And then I would really encourage watching Blue Eyes Brown Eyes by Jane Elliott. Um, you can find it on YouTube. It was the day after Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Jane Elliott is a white teacher, and she carried out this experiment in her elementary classroom. And it was just she just started treating the brown eyes and the blue eyes differently. And she saw what it brought up with her kids. And she saw how society, you know, it was like this little model of Mm -hmm. society. And at the time, it was very controversial, obviously. Um, Still is. And she's still very much a social justice advocate today. Um, She's great. She's feisty and fun to listen to. But I would encourage watching that video, too. I think that I watched that in school. And that was another one of the first things that, like, really, like, oh, yeah. Right. Open your eyes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's end our discussion for now on this. How are you practicing an awareness of white privilege and working to advocate for racial equality? A few things. One, practicing an awareness of who I see and listen to and what I consume. Mm -hmm. Like I talked about, just our media is overwhelmingly white. And what I want to say about this is that this awareness isn't about adding non-white people to my Instagram feed or subscribing to podcasts hosted by black people just to check a racially diverse box. Check, I did that, yeah. You know, our culture and our media is so dominated by white faces and voices, not because they're always the best, but just because that's how our society operates. So it's easier to miss great books, shows, podcasts, Mm -hmm. et cetera, featuring non-white people. So my seeking out this kind of media and perspective is is both about consuming high-quality media while also making sure I'm hearing perspectives that will broaden mine. Yeah, yeah. Um, bringing up topics around race, including white privilege in conversation. And one way I think that helps me do this is to be reading, listening, watching things yeah. where race is discussed or like tangential Mm -hmm. to it because it can be an easier conversation starter to say, Hey, I'm reading this interesting book. Here's what happened. Mm -hmm. And maybe from there talk about, you know, experiences, thoughts, questions, Mm -hmm. and things with people. So Mm -hmm. I just find that is like a natural way to have more conversations about Mm -hmm. those topics. And then the last one, and I think this really speaks to those feelings of guilt and shame is I work to just tell myself to be curious. Yeah. When I hear the term white privilege or someone is describing their experience with it, I try to ask myself, what feelings or memories is this bringing up? Yeah. Just just to be curious about it. Mm-hmm. It's not putting this onus on me, like you have to solve something. You have to feel bad about something that happened in the past. I just try to just be curious about Mm it. Hmm. Like, how does that feel to me? I wonder how that feels to someone who doesn't look like me. What does that make me want to know more about? So 
I just have found that to be kind of a, a more like neutral to proactive place yeah, to be like helpful. Exactly. Then. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Then, like I said, getting like stuck, mm-hmm. like feeling, feeling those other things. And I guess I want to say too, I just, I really hope what we are really hoping from this episode is that it's an invitation to our white listeners to be curious about your race and how it's affected mm-hmm. your life and what that means for people who are not white I know that this topic feels harder to talk about for white people because we're scared of saying the wrong thing or saying something racist, and I get that. But I'll share that for me personally. It feels so much better to be in the mindset of being open to learning and listening and improving Mm -hmm. rather than being in this space where I just am kind of too scared Mm -hmm. to even engage in it. Right. Or dismissing all that kind of talk as political or political correctness or whatever. It's a very easy thing to do instead of engaging with it. Yes. And I think once you open yourself up to engaging in it, you can be in this place how I guess I feel, I know that I'm doing my best, but at the same time that there will always be more that I can learn. Mm-hmm. I can always be doing better. I can acknowledge my white privilege and that being, and that in being white, I have a role in it, but I, I don't have to take on the guilt and shame, mm-hmm. like in a way, like we were talking about that paralyzes me right. from, like from stay acting. There. Mm-hmm. I really, I really like what you said about the, maybe the, the way to engage in some, guilt and some grief, but in that way of just, it's just like the human experience, the reality of it. Right. Yeah. I I really like that. And, and then I guess I also want to share, I think each of us can think a little more deeply about these things. You, you, no one is asking you to dedicate your life to racial equality Mm -hmm. activism, like Mm -hmm. in order to make a difference. And just want to say like both Erica and I, We are both busy moms with meals to plan Mm -hmm. and two podcasts Mm -hmm. each to produce. And neither of us find it to be a burden to think about and engage with this topic. I think this topic, yes, it can feel intimidating for white people to think and talk about. But I think what actually feels worse is knowing about it like mm-hmm. knowing yeah i think that's the thing i need to learn and tr- more about and trying yeah. to like ignore it or yeah, deny it you it know kind of like we were saying so yeah. i think there's always rooms in our lives to be a little more open and curious mm-hmm. um about ways we can make the mm-hmm. world better even our ability to decide whether or not we want to engage yes. with the topics around race is a privilege that's white privilege because it's not necessarily a choice for people who are not white. So just acknowledging that as we even think through those things. Um, Yeah, so some ways that I am practicing in awareness and working to advocate is being curious about my own bias, number Mm -hmm. one. And, um, you know, we've talked about a lot of this experiences in life that you've had that have led to your own biases. We're we're all biased in all kinds of ways, right? Not just racially, but to really get curious about that, to be willing to um, put yourself in a vulnerable position where you are sitting with a book that's like, hey, have you thought about these things? And and letting that be okay. Like, mm-hmm. just, it's okay to acknowledge that it doesn't make you a bad person. It doesn't make you a, you know, a KKK member. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> we got, we have to quit um, demonizing it so much that we don't deal with the reality of it. And I think that that's important. Another big thing is to just grow your empathy. 
I think that the point you made about listening to and taking seriously the stories of people who are not white, Mm -hmm. read what they write, watch movies by them, watch movies about them, follow non-white creators. Again, not to check a politically correct box, but because you're missing part of the story if you don't. Like you are missing the human experience, especially if you are someone who wants to be anti, you know, actively anti-racist and help to make this a better situation. Mm-hmm. You can't do that without hearing a story from somebody that you don't understand. Like mm-hmm. you have to, you have to engage purposefully um, in hearing about things that are different than your life experience and believing them. Mm-hmm. I think that that is another big problem is that because we haven't experienced something doesn't mean it's not true, you know, so that that's super important. Um, Build relationships, actual human flesh relationships with people who are not white, Mm -hmm. which I will be honest, this is hard for me living in Gilbert. And I have, I don't even know if the word is guilt, but I feel disappointed sometimes that I kind of accidentally, like I didn't think about it that much. And maybe this is my privilege showing that I, of how white Gilbert is and how much, you know, I'm raising two Hispanic girls in a very white place. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not exposed to the different cultures that I would like to be. And I feel like even just looking for ways to build relationships with people, if that starts online, if that starts in a church community where you maybe intentionally go outside of your Mm -hmm. usual comfort zone. Um, But again, not because you need to have that token black friend, Mm -hmm. but because it enriches your life to know more different kinds of people that have lived different lives. And it's important. And I think that you can't, um, I think Carlos Whitaker says this, somebody I follow on Instagram, and I really love this. He says, don't stand on issues, walk with people. Mm. And you can't just make this about an issue or a political topic or a talking point. It's about people yes. and their real life. And the more that you actually interact with said people, mm-hmm. the better understanding you will have. And then I think it's important as white people to amplify the voices of people who are not white mm-hmm. and value those perspectives. So For example, I'm going to share just a couple that are my absolute favorite follows on Instagram and that I'm learning so much from. One is Sharon Harper and her book, Fortune. She does a lot of digging into her ancestry as an African-American woman in this country and how, you know, how hard that even was to do, Mm -hmm. that we've erased whole family histories, especially when we think about how proud some of us are of being Italian or Irish or whatever it might be. And... Names were changed, families were separated, people were literally kidnapped from their homeland over and over, and how that impacts Mm -hmm. um, the idea of family in African-American culture and heritage. And she just has a lot of really great conversations online and off um, about this topic that I think you could learn a lot from. Um, Another follow to talk specifically about education and um, specifically children's books, she has all kinds of great things on this, is Amber O'Neill Johnston of the Heritage Mom blog. Um, She has a new book coming out, A Place to Belong, Celebrating Diversity and Kinship in the Home and Beyond. And she even just posted recently that she gets a lot of questions. Is this book only for black people? She's a black mom. And she's like, um, no. <laughs> no, it's not. We could all celebrate diversity right. and kinship. And just the fact that she even gets asked that yeah. is like white privilege, right? Yes. Like, is diversity only for black people? Mm-hmm. Like, no, this is embracing for everybody. So that's another great follow. And then um, another great book that I read a few years back, and I just love all of her work online, is 
I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness by Austin Channing Brown. Mm -hmm. And I think she just has some really great things to say, particularly in the faith space, growing up as a black woman in mostly white evangelical culture Mm -hmm. and, and really like holds up a mirror to that whole thing. And so I think, um, you could really learn a lot from her. Okay. So that wraps up very imperfectly. I'm sure our topic for today that we tried to approach with some humility and some tenderness, but I think that we're really hoping that this is just the beginning of the conversation and not an end point, not a be all end all, you know, okay, we've wrapped up racism in a tidy bow, but really to open up the conversation, especially in our own sphere of influence and and through this platform to keep the conversation going. So we would love to do that with you. Okay. Switching gears. What are you currently obsessed with? Okay. I am obsessed with it is right outside my front windows. It is my blooming Palo Verde trees. So pretty. I am obsessed with these. So these trees are native to Arizona. They have smooth green Mm -hmm. bark. And then in the springtime, the trees just burst into yellow bloom. Mm -hmm. And my trees are at peak bloom right now. And Oh my gosh. It's like everything we don't get in the fall, we get in the spring. It's like (laughs) that same beautiful golden color. I just, I love it so much. And one of the reasons I also love it so much is because we just planted these trees three years ago, which is wild. Mm -hmm. They're very fast growers. And so before that, we get just full Western blazing sun in the afternoon on our house. I mean, we could never have the curtains open. It just, oh, you just felt like you were baking. Mm And so just in three years now, instead of just seeing the blistering sun out my front windows, Mm -hmm. now I see these beautiful trees. The front yard is so nicely shaded. Mm -hmm. I sit out there with Maeve in the afternoon, just like in the shade. Where there's like no shade to be had on the West otherwise. Yeah. It's so so wonderful. The other thing that I love about them is as the blooms fall, they're this like deep golden color and then they're just blanketing my yeah. front yard. And they stay I that way too. That. They don't get like brown before yes, they fall off. They stay beautiful yes. and golden. So just this little corner of my front yard, it's like Carpet. this beautiful botanical garden. Mm-hmm. And I just, oh, I just stand out there in the falling blossoms. I love to cross the street and look back at my house so and appreciate pretty. it. So anyway, obsessed. So pretty. Um Okay, I am obsessed with because I feel the heat upon us. Yes. And we talk about this every year. We get a little bit the way that people in the Midwest and Northeast get about like fall where it's like, okay, yeah, spring is really nice here, but then that means that summer is coming. Summer is coming. And so I I think I was talking to you about this and you're like, well, what if you, you know, get a couple new things, like think about your summer wardrobe. So that is what I'm doing. I am in search of all of the perfect like, summer dresses and I have no shame about buying them in 27 colors. I don't mm-hmm. care. Mm-hmm. I just want to be cool but feel put together. Yep. I don't want to think about like riding up shorts and all. I just Yes. And not that I will never wear shorts or jeans in the summertime, but I want to think about like how can I be as comfortable and cute and I'm thinking about colors that are coordinating so when I pack for a trip it's not hard. So I have a whole bunch of stuff on the way. Okay. And I don't know if I'm obsessed with any of it okay. or not, but I have been purchasing quite a bit. So okay. I have to say that that is my obsession okay. and I will keep you all posted and link to wonderful things. Report back. Uh, yeah. The preparing for summer is a very yes. much on my mind. We're like little in reverse, like little chipmunks. You chip have to, like yes. Getting yes. ready. <laughs> Secreting away things. Yes. 
Okay. Well, thank you so much for listening, hopefully with an open mind and an open heart and a willingness to engage along with us. Um, You can find us in between episodes on Instagram, and we would love to continue the conversation over there. We are Hi Girls Next Door. The show notes for this episode are in your podcast player with links to everything we mentioned and on our website, girlnextdoorpodcast.com. And we would love to hear from you by email at highgirlsnextdoor at gmail.com. Thanks so much for dropping in. Until next time, be neighborly. I didn't. I like where you're going. Yep. I like where you're going. Like stuck on the tree, very. Hold on. <laughs> like Who's really getting into the. <laughs> Okay, test, test, test. <clears throat> oh, I see waves from both of us. Testing. That's great. That's I don't great. I think I'll be singing it all during this episode. <laughs> Just break into a little song and dance. I don't think this is the one to. <laughs> my water. I cannot promise there will not be a throat bubble. Sorry.